Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about overcoming our biases, reducing our biases, trying to bring our biases to a minimum. And there are a few techniques that we could use to try to limit the effect of our personal biases in the way that we treat evidence and look at the world. And we all have biases. I have biases. You have biases. Biases are just it, it's it's unavoidable. Every single individual is going, be, is going to be coming to the same data, the same information that they receive, and they're going to be looking at that data through their own unique lens. And that lens is made up of their own thoughts, desires, ideas, uh, even their experience. Our experience uh, colors the way we see the world. Those with, who are older probably have more experience, and so they, they could uh, better anticipate the way things are going to turn out just due to how they know things have turned out in the past. Younger people might be more open to new possibilities or trying new things and thinking new thoughts because they might not be set into that mindset. So we all have biases. It's a, it's a natural conclusion of how anyone sees the world. I think of the new uh, Mike Cernovich movie, Hoaxed, in which uh, Stephen Molyneux he goes through Plato's allegory of the cave to illustrate the idea of fake news and how fake news puts a perspective on things and people are are uh, they're put into this mindset because they consume all this fake news and they see the world through a certain lens. And the allegory of the cave is used to illustrate that the people who break out of this cycle of fake news now can see the truth. But yeah, uh, Plato wasn't actually writing the allegory in that sense. He was talking about a spiritual ascent away from the physical world was his idea, but it works as an illusion, a metaphor for the idea that people have different perspectives. People see the world differently based on their knowledge, how they're coming to any issue. And the goal of a good theologian, the goal of a good, even just a person, just, just consuming normal data from any news source or any data that they're presented, we need to limit our biases. We need to try to understand the data in the most neutral way possible. We need to understand it through the eyes, through the lens of other people and see how other perspectives can interpret the same data. That's one thing that we need to keep in mind that any set of data can be explained through multiple means. And one example of this I use in my book uh, is an example of a dirty room. So the same dirty room could be due to years of neglect or it also could be due to maybe there's a movie producer who's setting up a scene for a film. Any set of data has multiple interpretations. There's people who deny this. Uh, they militantly come out and say, oh, my, my explanation of the data is the only one that works and the, everything else should be discarded. They're not rational people. Um, <laughs> data is flexible. Data can be explained in multiple ways. Even language, language is a, a set of data. Uh, I use the example in my book if I say, oh, my wife is the most attractive woman in the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that I think she's the most attractive, beautiful person in the entire world. It could mean that in spite of her, I don't know, aging or whatever, that uh, her personality is the most attractive to me out of any other woman. It, it could mean that I think that all men would value her looks over every other woman on earth. It could be just a sarcastic remark. Maybe it's uh, said uh, tongue-in-cheek in jest. It could be an outright lie. Right, the same data can be explained by different models. And what gives meaning to uh, one interpretation over another is context. So you need to try to expand your data set in order to understand the true meaning of data, the, the most plausible interpretation of the data. Because no one model is the one true model of that data. 
All right, so that's an important fact that uh, different people can come to the same data set. Rational people, fully intelligent, fully capable of analyzing data. Two people could come to the same data set and walk away with uh, alternative and both valid interpretations of that data. Rational people can disagree. In a world where there's only one right party, that's, that's not a rational world. That's not the world we operate in. And beware of people who claim there's only one correct answer. So again, uh, data can have multiple interpretations and what gives a better interpretation of the data is context. One thing we need to do to limit our bias, this is our first principle. Principle number one is disassociation. Someone uh, accused me, I don't know if it's accused, but said, well, I didn't know you disassociate yourself from the biblical authors. Well, well, if I'm trying to project my own personal feelings into the Bible, I, I'd say, oh, this is the philosophy that I like. And so the biblical authors must have agreed with me. Uh, that's an incorrect way to read the Bible. We need to let the Bible speak for itself, and we need to be dispassionate about what they believe. That doesn't mean we have to be dispassionate about God or dispassionate about uh, some of the ideas that are presented, the murder of the unborn, for example. We don't have to be dispassionate about those things. But when we're trying to interpret the data, we need to take our feelings out of that data set. It, just because well, in politics it happens all the time, what what's someone's reaction to a Trump tweet? Well, those supporters of him will paint that in a positive light, and those people who hate him will will paint it in the most despicable light whatsoever. They, they'll always attribute like racism or dog whistles or anything that Trump does. They're mind reading. They're secretly mind reading because they hate this guy, and so everything he does has to be painted in some sort of negative light. I, I feel the more rational people are the people who criticize Trump and praise him depending on his actions. Those are the people that you probably should pay more attention to because they are treating it more fairly. It's it's not this uh, love-hate uh, relationship where you have to be on one extreme or the other. They, they seem to exercise some discretion and, and, uh, and they evaluate things based on actions, not based on who the person is. So sometimes our emotions can very much taint our perception, how we interact with the data. And so disassociation, I, I do not care. I do not care if open theism is true or false. I, it wouldn't phase me one way or the other. It's not like I, I have a, a huge emotional investment in open theism being true. And some people do with their theology. They can't imagine a world that, uh, you know, their theology could be wrong. And and everyone who disagrees with them are heretics, and, and they're the, the scum of the earth. Everyone who disagrees with them. You know, my theology doesn't have to be true. I don't care if my theology is true or false. What I care about is truth. What is true, and that's, that's, that's the goal, regardless of my feelings. What if the world turns out to be a worse place than they thought? What if uh, atheism turns out to be true? Well, so be it. I can't inject my personal emotions into the interpretation of the data. I can't use the moralistic fallacy. That's often what this comes down to is the moralistic fallacy. Oh, I must believe the data means this or else this negative thing would be true. That's, that's not an argument. That's not an argument. The data needs to speak for itself, irrespective of our emotional leanings on that data. Disassociation. So uh, use disassociation to interpret the data, and then I guess you could reassociate after that. After, after you disassociated to interpret the data, then add in back in your emotions. See if uh, what the data lines up with how you care about those conclusions that you reached independently of your emotions.
take our emotions out of the equation, disassociate to interpret the data. Our second point we've already hit on a lot. Uh, understand that uh, data has various interpretations. There's multiple valid interpretations for any data. Two people might come to the book of Genesis and one might say, this is a historical text meant to be taken historically. And someone else might come to the text and say, this is a polemical text meant to criticize the ancient Near East idea of the creation of the universe. And it's being used to subvert those themes and then posit this idea of the true creator God. And so they take it as a polemic rather than a historical narrative. And right, what lends itself to one interpretation or the other uh, context? You could debate the context uh, of uh, any of these passages to try to figure out if it's historical, if it's polemic, if it's something else. You know, there's there's other options out there. But uh, I'm not going to say that that person's wrong. Uh, Greg Boyd wants to come to the Bible and he wants to read it in a Christocentric way. He says the correct way to read the Bible is in light of the person of Jesus. And uh, everything in the Bible, no matter what it says, needs to be given this uh, Christocentric reinterpretation. Well, that's, I guess, one way of interpreting the data. I, I don't agree with the interpretation method per se. We could debate what's the most valid interpretation method, but... That is a model that fits the data. You, you, you can build models that fit the data, and uh, it can't be criticized on my model merits. So I'm not going to say, coming from a historical critical uh, methodology, and come to his Christocentric methodology and say, well, you're, you're just wrong because this, this, and this. He's like, but I'm not using that way to interpret the data. You just got to nod your head and say, okay, yeah, I, I see that you're using a different method. Um, I don't think that's the correct method, but that is that is a model. It is workable with the data set, I guess. I guess. The next thing, then our next point on overcoming bias. Remember, we have disassociation. Let's get our personal emotions out of it and understanding that data has various interpretations. Our next thing we need to do is understand critics, understand people who think differently than us. And an excellent way to do this, Brian Kaplan, he's an economist, he came up with this idea of an intellectual Turing test. And a Turing test in computer science is a test designed to show when we have reached the tr state of true AI. When you could have a conversation with a computer and not know that you're having a conversation with a computer is the point in the Turing test of reaching the full uh, AI, I don't know. But in, in, in an intellectual Turing test, this idea is that uh, if I like present myself as a Calvinist, that I could come off as a passable Calvinist without anyone questioning my Calvinist uh, credentials. If I can do that, that means if I could truly emulate those people who uh, disagree with me, then I am more likely to, it doesn't necessarily mean I do understand everything of their theology, but I, it's, it's more realistic that I understand their position. If I understand their position, if I'm able to emulate it precisely, explicitly, then uh, I'm in their mindset. I, I, I know what they're thinking. I, I know their position. And my position, although it differs from them, is more likely to be accurate because I could accurately understand people who disagree with me, people who are looking at the same data and coming to different conclusions. If I could emulate that, uh, there's a better chance that uh, my own position is correct because I un understand both their position, their perspective, and mine, and I'm choosing my perspective. If you don't understand your critics, if you can't emulate them, if you, if you uh, misrepresent them, then you're probably um, not understanding 
where they're coming from. You, you just, you're, you're not uh, understanding their interpretation of the data, which could uh, be a plausible interpretation of the data. You don't know because you're not there where you understand it. So next mitigation strategy, uh, after understanding your critics, being able to emulate your critics, is a neutral third party. People who don't have a dog in the game uh, who also weigh in on whatever it is you're discussing. People who, who don't have emotional investment. Remember, our number one uh, thing was uh, disassociation, uh, getting our emotions out of it. Grabbing a neutral third party, someone who, who can weigh in as a neutral judge, a neutral uh, individual to add additional information, uh, add a different perspective coming from a non-biased. Again, not, not like completely non-biased, but uh, it's mitigated. The bias is mitigated because they, they don't have a dog in the game. They don't have a dog in the fight. And wh what I do there is uh, I turn to scholars. Uh, when we're talking about the biblical data, you look at the Bible, you could go look at what secular scholars say. Do, does, do the secular scholars, do they, do they care about dogma? Do they care about uh, uh, reinforcing these uh, strong ideas of what God must be like in the biblical text? They don't care. They do not care how the Israelites portrayed God. In fact, they have a vested interest historically to uh, uh, project him as the ancient Israelites projected God. They, they have a vested interest to try to understand that ancient culture for what it is. Like if you turn to a Babylonian scholar, a Sumerian scholar, they're, they're not trying to force a narrative on uh, these different Babylonian and Sumerian gods. They just, they just want to know what these people believed, what their theology was, what their ideas of the divine was. And biblical scholarship, who, which is not Christian, not Christian, they're not, they're not pushing an agenda. Uh, they might be pushing an anti-God agenda, don't get me wrong, but they're not pushing a dogmatic agenda. They, they, they don't care if God's unchanging or changing. They don't care if God knows all future events or, or doesn't know all future events. They don't have a dog in that fight. So they're coming from a neutral third-party position that's very informed because they're scholars in the subject. So turn to the scholars, see what the scholars say. Another way to find neutral th third parties is uh, laymen. I know some people criticize this approach. When I was getting kicked out of uh, uh, one church, the guy said, any, any uh, six-year-old or whatever, any, uh, no, like eight-year-old, any eight-year-old can read this verse and see that God knows all future events. And it's uh, the verse in Proverbs about the eyes of God are looking at the ways of the good and the wicked. And so what I did is I tested that out because that's actually a great test to bring that to um, young readers, people who have basic reading comprehension skills and see what they say. And of course, all the eight and nine year olds that I queried about it. So I, I did, I did, I followed up on that and I, I showed it to them and I asked what their perspective was. And of course, every single one of them is, oh, God's watching us. And, uh, and on top of that, God has eyes, which uh, the pastor who was throwing out this test, which I agree was a good test. Um, he doesn't agree with those nine year olds that he queried as support for his position which is actually pretty funny. So here's the mall test. The mall test is you go to the mall and you grab uh, 10 random people and have them read a passage. And then you see what they say about that passage, what their interpretation of that passage is. It's not going to give you 100%. This is, this is definitely what this passage means, but it will give you a good range of what competent readers, people reading uh, the text normally, what, what a range of readings would entail. 
and you don't have to agree with the majority conclusion or anything like that. There might be idiomatic uh, expressions that these people don't understand or anything, but it'll give you a range. It'll show you what's reasonable. And so that range will tell you what you can't just dismiss out of hand. You just don't uh, throw it in the trash. Oh, you read this verse like this? Well, that's absolutely not the case. We'll throw it away. Well, yeah, a competent reader is going to read that in the text. And what, what's the Bible? It's a text written to normal people of normal understanding for normal comprehension. And so, yeah, I think the layman test is a very good test to understand the range and possibilities in reading and probably even what's the most probable reading. If you got a strong trend in one particular interpretation, that's probably the correct interpretation. All right, so that method of uh, mitigating your biases is uh, checking with third parties, neutral parties who could act as a mediator, a judge, or or a, a next set of eyes that uh, is is neutral in the debate, doesn't have a dog in the fight. And they could provide a lot of insight into the meaning of data, into the meaning of verses, into the meaning of uh, what's being said in the text. The next thing we need to keep in mind is that we need to neutralize special pleading. And special pleading is this idea that um, you have to read some sort of text or some sort of data in a very idiosyncratic way, in a way that only applies to this text and nothing else. And and uh, it's not accessible to normal people. Like, uh, it's funny when I'll be debating these Calvinists and I'll say, well, here's what the biblical scholarship says. And they'll say, oh, those guys can't be trusted because they're, they're, they don't have, uh, they, they hate the Bible. And so anything they say needs to just be discarded out of hand. So then you'll turn to the layman and say, well, here's, here's what uh, normal reading would uh, say about this, this verse. Uh, and we could, we could test this. We could go grab 10 people from the mall and see what they say about this verse. And they'll, they'll discard that too. They'll say, oh, those laymen don't have the special enlightening to uh, read, read the Bible. And so we can't uh, trust anything that either the scholars or the laymen have. And so what they're saying is they're the only people that, uh, that you're debating with, typically Calvinists, they say, we're the only people that can read the true meaning of the Bible. It's, it's like, really? Because that seems like it's free floating. It's, it's uh, something that's not falsifiable and you can make the text say whatever you want. And other people can have equally valid special pleading claims using the same arguments. There might be some, some crazy guy at the mental institution saying that he, he's the only true reader of the Bible and everyone else isn't spiritually enlightened. And he thinks the Bible is about talking fish or something like that, that rule the world. And I don't know, some crazy nonsense. Special pleading gets you nowhere. You, you need to be, have some sort of objective reality outside yourself. And one way to do this, uh, I like to point to what I call counterproof texts in the Bible, in which we take phrases that uh, classical theists or Augustinian uh, theists, they will say, oh, see, these verses mean this particular thing. They, this verse means that God knows all past, present, and future. And then you'll turn to similar verses that are about mankind with the exact same phrasing and say, well, what does it mean in this context? And they will never have considered it. They were trying to militantly uh, insist of their own reading of that verse, their own interpretation, and disallow all others. Whereas in reality, the Bible normally uses the exact same phrases to mean quite different concepts in different contexts. So the context is actually what gives definition and meaning to the statement. You can't just insist on your own reading of that. You have to point to context and you have to argue from context that your verse means what you want to say. You can't 
There's no standalone verse quoting. There's no throwing a verse on the screen and saying, see, this verse means my theology. Because remember, data has multiple plausible interpretations depending on what's going on there. And the counterproof text, it doesn't mean, when I do this, it doesn't mean that the verse means the exact same thing when applied to God as applies to man, but it has to be an option. That linguistically, it is an option, and you have to show why your option is the preferable option. It's not a standalone text that you could quote without commentary that your option is the only true correct option when these other options exist and are used in context. I uh, use the 1 John uh, 2.20 versus 1 John 3.20 with Matt Slick, where Matt Slick said, oh, God knows all things, past, present, and future. And he uses 1 John 3.20. And I point to 1 John 2.20, where the exact same phrase is used about mankind, used about men, and uh, he doesn't want to take the same reading. He just wants to insist on his own special reading, his, his special pleading, his own idiosyncratic personal interpretation of this one verse where there's other similar verses using the exact same phrases, which he takes in a different way because they're not about God. It's, it's special pleading. It's not a rational way to do theology. It's not a rational way to do data. If something only applies to um, this particular instance, it's not... There's no no rationality check. There's there's no no check on uh, uh, irrational takes on that verse. It's the mental institution guide saying, "Oh, my own special reading is the only true one." Why? Because the Bible tells me that my own special reading is the only true one. And here's what it means, and it's something crazy. Another thing I like to do to neutralize special pleading is look at other ancient Near East texts, which have very similar phrases, like Marduk knows all things. Marduk is perfect. Marduk. Uh, his will cannot be opposed. What he say, says is the law and cannot be subverted. And Marduk's a created God. He rises to ascension through divine warfare and takes the head of a council of gods. And these phrases are used about him. And a Calvinist, uh, although they might read the same phrases about God in the Bible, and they'll take those phrases as definitively, this is our Calvinist theology that God is immutable and simple and outside of time and completely sovereign in our own it's the idiosyncratic way of defining sovereignty where God micromanages all things. You're right. They just grab words and they put uh, meanings that have nothing to do with the word because they really like the word. Uh, they just want a different definition. And so they'll do that and they'll take these same phrases and they'll just assume their theology into those phrases. No, there's other options. And if you look at this other ancient Near East text, the same phrases have very different meanings, very very common sense meanings that you could uh, acquire through just straight reading the text. All you have to do is read the text, read the narrative, figure out what's going on, figure out who these characters are, and then you understand the meaning of those phrases. It's not how these guys want to take it. They want to take this little phrase, as ascribe this uh, super uh, super uh, literal type of meaning or this super, super philosophical meaning on these these short phrases and then just blanket apply that to all the narratives so if god's repenting they say oh god's not a man that he should repent and that takes precedence over the narrative well no that's that's not how we read things when we're reading the similar literature when we're reading about marduk and his uh his sovereignty and his his knowledge and his perfection you know we read it in light of the narrative and it, it means totally different things the exact same phrases and so if we were to be intellectually honest, we would try to read the Bible in the same way. Not saying, it's not saying that uh, we have to take other near, ancient Near East concepts and those are what Yahweh's like. I'm not saying that, but it has to be an option. Linguistically, 
It's true. Linguistically, the same people who will argue for absolute philosophical uh, concepts and these little chance verses, these little phrases, linguistically, they will read these other texts normally, like a normal person. So when they're coming to the Bible, that's called special pleading. They're reading it specific to uh, the Bible. And nothing, their rules apply to nothing else in life, nothing else they encounter. And uh, that's how they force their philosophy into the Bible. They don't allow natural understandings of the text. They don't allow our natural reading to prevail. And these same people, if they were reading this other text, they would read it like a normal person. But they come to the Bible and they say, oh, the Bible needs these special rules, which uh, pre-validates our theology before we even read the text. And so anything the text says, it has to be our theology. They're reading their theology into the text rather than letting the text speak for itself. We should read similar literature in similar ways. And that should be our default understanding of the phrases, of the verses, of the data that we encounter. We have to use using the same rules that we would apply any other data in similar circumstances, right? There's no special pleading. Special pleading means your views are irrational. It means they're free floating without uh, any check on rationality, without anything to tie it down. Uh, and anyone, anyone with special pleading claims have equally valid claims. The crazy person in the sane asylum has the exact same special pleading authority, special pleading possibility of him being true as the Calvinist does in their special pleading. That only Calvinists, they're the only ones who can read the Bible in the true understanding of the Bible because they have a special enlightening. The crazy person has the same claim and it equally is valid, equally is valid. Uh, next thing we need to do to overcome bias is uh, check up uh, our predictions against reality. Um, using data, looking at data, uh, make predictions and see if those predictions come true. Julian Simon, uh, he's my guy. He was an economist who bet uh, Paul Ehrlich about resources. And it was a very famous bet. And Paul Ehrlich was saying, oh, the world is going to come to an end by the year 2000. There's going to be bread lines and everyone's going to be starving and there's going to be massive population deficits where people just, there's not enough resources to go around. And Julian Simon said, oh, you want to bet? Because Julian Simon, in the course of his life, he found out that adults, people don't actually believe what they say. So they are unwilling to put their own money on their predictions. I do this with Calvinists sometimes. I say, hey, put up your money. Um, I bet if we grab 10 random people from the mall, this is what they're going to say about this verse. And the Calvinists will refuse to bet. They'll say, no, oh, no, I, uh, they'll either discredit the layman. Oh, the layman don't know what they're talking about, which, you know, the Calvinist will just, in, in my experience, will just completely refuse to even predict what layman will read in a verse. In, in a, as you take a verse and you say, what would a random person who's a competent reader say about this verse? They'll refuse to even predict it because they, they intuitively understand that their reading is not the intuitive reading of that verse. That if you just grab normal competent readers, they'll read that verse differently than how they want to take the verse. And they don't want the possibility of the, that reading being a possibility for that verse. They, they want only their reading to be the only rational reading of the verse, where in reality, it's not the probable reading. Uh, the probable reading is what normal competent readers would read when coming to that verse. That's that's what's probable. That's the most probable. And they want to deny the most probable thing as an option. Accurate predictions. That's that's a pretty good way to see if you're if you're tracking, if you're understanding uh, the way the world operates. During the Trump election and, uh, you know, like three years ago, 
or whatnot. Uh, all the media sources put Trump at uh, probably like a 90 to 100% chance of loss, whereas he won. It up upset this worldview that these people held. It shattered their reality. And how did they cope with it? You saw a lot of crying. You saw a lot of uh, mental breakdowns. You saw a lot of uh, people trying to explain away the data. Oh, half of America is racist. <laughs> half of America is racist. Half of America is racist. And they're all bigots and they're all stupid. And women were forced into voting by their husbands. Uh, it, the, these, these strategies to try to cope with a reality that crumbled before them because their predictions of the world turned out not to be true. Their, their understanding, their, their bubble that they had set themselves in. A lot of these reporters are saying, I, don't, I didn't even know anyone who voted for Trump. Yeah, you're living in a bubble world. You need to break out of your bubble world. You need to understand uh, how the world really is. And Jonathan Haidt, he has, uh, he has a book on this, The Righteous Mind. I haven't read the book, but I've read uh, snippets and uh, reviews and stuff like that. He talks about how, in, you know, generally in politics, the, the right, the people on the right could accurately represent the ideas of the people on the left. And the people on the left cannot accurately represent the ideas of the people on the right because the left is in a bubble. They're, they're isolated. They, they don't understand other points of view and they are stuck in their own worldview. Who does, who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? Sounds a little to me like the, the Calvinist or, or I guess their Calvinists are a boogeyman. But uh, that Calvinists generally can't, in my experience, uh, emulate the other side. They can't accurately represent open theists and what open theists say. But back to the point, accurate predictions. Uh, the people who more accurately predict what's going on and what will happen, those are the people who, who you should more listen to. People who are willing to put their money on uh, where their mouth is. People who are willing to put a personal stake. Because a lot of times... A lot of times uh, people, they have no, it's, it's called rational irrationality where they, if they, you don't have a personal cost to making inaccurate predictions, if there's no personal cost to saying wildly outlandish things about anything, um, then you're incentivized to make those outlandish claims, especially if you gain status in your group. You take the Tim Herds of the world and they're incentivized very highly to say wildly irrational things about all their critics. Oh, everyone's going to hell. Everyone's a wolf. And uh, just the most outrageous things in, the, in complete ignorance. Remember, this is the guy who didn't know what divine simplicity was. Mr. Calvinist podcaster doesn't know what divine simplicity is. Uh, complete idiot. Complete idiot making outlandish claims. And he's just being propped up socially by his supporters. He doesn't have anything personally to lose for making wildly inaccurate, insane claims. He doesn't. And so he operates in this world of irrationality. And the last thing here is uh, understanding uh, marginalism. This is a term in economics where everything's not black and white in this world. There's, there's different degrees. Our choice isn't between eating uh, like a ton of ice cream and eating no ice cream. It's Maybe I eat one scoop. Maybe I eat two scoops. It's marginalism. What increment is the best and most conducive in increment? Uh, I tell my boys the example of smoking. So everyone says, oh, you should never smoke. Well, really? Never smoke? Maybe you smoke one cigarette a month. Is that going to have any negative impact on your health? Maybe one cigarette a year. Maybe one cigarette every 10 years. Your, your options are not between smoking and not smoking. Uh, maybe maybe seven packs a day, that, that might be a little much, and uh, you shouldn't do that because there's definite ramifications. But anything in quantity can kill you. Carrots have uh, arsenic in them, apples have uh, 
arsenic in them. It's just naturally occurring. And if you eat enough carrots, you drink enough water, you drink, eat enough apples, it will kill you in large amounts. So we need to care about incrementalism, small changes. There's a Calvinist Bible study where the Calvinist, I was in this Calvinist Bible study, and he said, this church across the street or wherever, they don't believe in the virgin birth. I don't think they're Christians. I'm like, really, is, is that is that uh, the dividing line? So I, I asked him, I said, okay, let's take you. Uh, you believe everything you currently believe, except for this one thing, that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, you believe everything you do now, except for that one thing. Um, are you a Christian? Are you going to heaven or whatever? And uh, he, he paused there a minute and he's like, oh, I, I think so. And uh, so here's my point. My point was we, we can't be thinking in these black and white terms where this one thing's a disqualifying thing. We need, we need to consider everything at the margin, everything incrementally. Uh, is there dividing lines? If so, what are those dividing lines? Are there mitigating circumstances to those dividing lines? Maybe someone grew up in the deepest, darkest part of, I don't know, like Central America, and they've only been told Mary's not a virgin. That's what they're taught their entire life. Now they're going to hell for that? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think uh, circumstances need to be accounted for. In the Bible, God seems like a very, very uh, attuned to conditions, to uh, factors that weigh into what people believe and what circumstances they believe a very proportionally based judgment that he gives based on life circumstances. I'm always reminded of Nineveh where he says, why should I destroy Nineveh? They don't even know their left from their right hand. Their ignorance was a mitigating factor in their non-destruction because God, God's rational. He thinks at the margin. God's an economist. He, he, he believes in marginalism. I believe in marginalism too. Rational people believe in marginalism. Our, our choice isn't between vaccinating your kid and not vaccinating your kid. Your choice is maybe between giving them whatever number of vaccinations at a different age, you know, delayed vaccinations, uh, lessened scopes of vac vaccination. So it's it's not all or none. We don't live in an all or none world. We live in an incremental world where where not everything has to be an on and off switch. We live with a world of choices and, and there's there's trade offs. There's trade offs we have to consider in these choices. And marginalism is the correct way to uh, weigh those trade offs. All right, just recapping our ways to mitigate bias. Disassociation, bring our emotions out of any issue that we're evaluating. Understanding that data has various interpretations. Understanding that rational people can come to disagreements. And that doesn't mean one's wrong and one's right. Rational people can disagree and uh, you know still be rational, intellectual, smart individuals. Understand your critics. Be able to engage in a Turing test. Be able to emulate them and understand the perspective that they're coming from. The more perspectives you have access to, the better you are to be able to see the data in an objective sense. Get some neutral third parties, scholars, laymen, people who don't have the dog in the game to weigh in and provide a neutral voice, a voice that will, will guide you to a more probable uh, uh, perspective, one that is a little bit more objective, one that uh, mitigates this uh, emotional buy-in that we have to any issue. Neutralize special pleading. Don't uh, stand alone. Um, just argue that anything is something just because of itself. Uh, have consistent standards. Be able to use the same standards in similar circumstances with other things. Be able to have standards that are outside of yourself. Objective standards. Standards that apply in any circumstance. And of course, uh, make accurate predictions. Be able to put your money where your mouth is. 
And last of all, understand marginalism, understand incrementalism, understand that the world doesn't operate with on and off switches, but it operates by increments. The world's not a black and white place. The world has shades of gray, shades of 50 shades of gray, maybe, maybe more than that, more, more than 50 shades of gray. But uh, there's shades of gray. There's there's different things that work in different circumstances. There's different conditions and and not everything is on and off. Not everything is uh uh, heretic or orthodox there there's there's in between there's in between just to understand that the world the world's a complicated place and objective people need to mitigate their biases all right leave a comment leave a question on uh, start a thread on god is open thank you for listening <laughs>